Father, it is with great joy that we are gathered here uh, outside our post office on this lot that you gave us for $1 plus a $35 processing fee several years ago. And here we are uh, worshiping you under the canopy of your glory. We thank you, Lord, um, that our God reigns. We thank you that death could not hold you down, Jesus, because you are the king. You're the king of the ages. You're the king of even the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. You're the king over death. And we want to celebrate that this morning. I ask that for whatever reason anybody finds themselves here, that they would have a real life-giving encounter with the life-giving God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all hear me all right? I don't think it's working on live stream audio, so I'll talk extra loud so maybe somehow they'll be able to hear. It's working now? Awesome. Thank you, tech team, for all you do behind the scenes to make it happen. Humor. Humor is the device that humanity has long used to, de to deal with the fear of their own impending death and the sorrow over the death of others. Humor. So almost every comedian has at least one one-liner in his or her arsenal of jokes dealing with death. Woody Allen had this famous statement, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And then George Carlin in one of his rare clean lines said, I always enjoy it when someone is delivering a eulogy and I realize I'm listening to it, and it's not my own. Sometimes we speak of death with these innocuous platitudes. We, we, we use these euphemisms to take away the sting of death. We will say that somebody has passed away, as if they got on an elevator, right? People used to say they are in a state of repose. They have left us. They have transitioned. They have carried on. And sometimes, especially in the military, people use rather crass descriptions of death. Especially if it's an enemy combatant. They'll say, I, he was given a dirt nap. I made him a root inspector. People will say, they're six feet under. They bought the farm. They bit the dust. Now all of those are ways that humanity seeks to deal with the fear of death and sorrow over death. And I'll remind you, as I just prayed, 1 Corinthians 15.26 says, The last enemy is death. Death has an insatiable appetite. Death is a voracious monster. There is not a person here who has a health, and a health insurance policy good enough to stave off debt. You can stave it off, but you can't stop it. You can change all your diet all you want, and that might not be a bad thing, but you can't diet your way to not dying. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter where you work, where you live, what you look like. Death is an equal opportunity employer, and all of us will be employed by death. The question is not if we will die. The only question is how we will die and when we will die. And that's why John 11 is such good news to us this morning. 
It's the fifth I am. And Jesus said those memorable words which reverberate through the ages to this very moment, to this very lot, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you ever think about death? The death of others? Or the death of yourself? Well, Jesus, Jesus resounded these hope-exploding words actually after a man had just died. His name is Lazarus. This is the seventh of seven miracles that John gives us in the Gospel of John. This is the miracle that finally triggers the resolve of the Jewish leaders to do whatever they need to do to eliminate Jesus, which, by the way, will only accomplish the plan of God. This miracle gets more ink than any other of Jesus' miracles in the Gospel of John. So you'll be patient with me if I leap over blocks of this story. I have several friends, they're called dead guys, who wrote commentaries on my shelf. I pulled one of them off, James Montgomery Boyce. He has a four-volume commentary on the Gospel of John. 17 sermons he has on this particular text. So again, I can't begin to hit everything. What I do want us to walk away with is this. Jesus is the king over the final enemy death for all who put their trust in him. And we're going to look at this text through the lens of three words or concepts, which I will fill out. First of all, through the lens of Jesus' mission. Second of all, through the lens of Jesus' compassion. And then third and finally, we can't miss this, through the lens of Jesus' power. So number one, what we're going to see is Jesus' mission to glorify God through or by saving sinners. Jesus' mission to glorify God by or through saving sinners. We're going to look at three in this first point, so statements. Da-da-da-da-da, X, so, da-da-da-da, Y will happen. Three so statements. And i got to tell you up front, these so statements are enigmatic. They're puzzling. In fact, they even seem a bit contradictory. And unless you embrace this truth, that Jesus' ultimate mission was to glorify God by saving sinners, you will have a problem with these three so's. But if you embrace that, you'll understand why he did what he did the way he did. So we're going to jump in at verse 4. And what we're going to see is this. John chapter 11. Jesus offers up three so statements that will help us understand that his mission was to glorify God by saving sinners. Verse 4, or verse, yeah, verse 3 really, um, what happens is Mary and Martha find out that their brother Lazarus died. Our text says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They, they send somebody to Jesus to let them know that their kid brother, whom they love and Jesus love, his name is Lazarus, died. So, look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Now, what is this chapter about? 
Lazarus actually dying. So you're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What do you mean it doesn't lead to death? This is why we're here. He has been dead, we'll see in just a minute, for four days. Reading on to get to the so statement, this illness does not lead to death. What? Okay. It is for the glory of God. Now read it with me. What? So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, this is all happening for my glory. For my glory in saving sinners. And I just have to tell us all up front, the reality is, God doesn't always do what He does so that we might fully understand it. Or so that we might agree with it or co-sign it. God does everything He does for what? For His glory. And if you were to do a study on all the verses in the Scripture that talk about all the different things God does for His glory, it would blow you away. I brought a list, but I can see for the sake of time it's not worthwhile going through it. But let me just tell you a few things the Bible says He does for His glory. He created everything for His glory. He raised up Pharaoh for His glory. He destroyed Pharaoh for His glory. In the New Testament, He destroyed Herod for His glory. And Jesus did say this, unless you see the glory of God, you can never have faith. And some of you are locked there. You don't understand God that does everything He does for His glory. And therefore, not seeing that, it's hard for you to make sense of what's going on in your life and around you. I don't believe you can ever get out of your starting the blocks of faith in your walk with Jesus unless you believe this. God does everything for His glory. But now, be careful with that. It doesn't mean He doesn't care about us. What I'm going to argue this morning is because God is so deeply compassionate or deeply passionate about His glory, it means He is intensely compassionate for His people. So let's go to the next so. Next so is found in verse 6. In verse 5 we read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. By the way, the second time of the text it says Jesus loved. Now if I'm saying, hmm, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, I'm thinking, well that being the case, he got on this sickness, look at his split, and took care of business, right? That would be the proper deduction. First it tells us he loved them, but now here's the second so. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you get the logic there? Because he loved them, he stayed. What, did he need to hate them for them to come right away? What, what's going on here? And I would just say this. God does not always answer our prayer requests the way we might want him to answer them because he's got bigger things in mind. He's got the big picture. And of course, he cares about us deeply, intimately, individually. No question about that. But do you know that sometimes our suffering is actually for the benefit of others? Do you have a hard time with that? Because if you do, you have a hard time with the heart of the gospel. Jesus' suffering wasn't for the benefit of himself, right? It was for the benefit of others. Read the Hebrews Hall of Faith. They suffered for our good. And in the case of Lazarus and the sorrow of his sisters Mary and Martha, for 20 centuries, 
Lost people have been converted out of that suffering, right? And God's people have been strengthened. Maybe, let me just put this out there for somebody, God wants to use your, your own trials to reverberate redemptively way beyond the epicenter of your personal pain. Well, that's the second so. Here's the third so. After two days, Jesus says, okay, let's go to Judea. He says, Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples were like, if he's asleep, then what's the worry? He'll wake up. So Jesus makes it clear he's speaking euphemistically of death. If you will look at verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has what? He's dead. Dead as doornails. He's died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. So, there's the third so, so that you may believe. Again, if you think Jesus' ultimate purpose is to make life better for people right now, he does do that, but his ultimate purpose, you're going to miss this. Because it doesn't sound like he's making life better, does it? Does it? We're outside. You can talk back. No. Again, he's got bigger things in mind. He wants to see them have the ultimate good of of experience of grace and a relationship with God. And this will make no sense unless you embrace this core principle that Jesus' ultimate mission is to glorify God by saving sinners. We move forward to verse 17 quickly. Jesus comes and he finds that Lazarus had already been in the tomb. How many days? Four days. Now, refrigeration wasn't much of a thing back then. Some of you are already thinking, man, I can't wait to get back into my AC if you have it. Back then, when somebody expired, they got them in a tomb or in the grave real quick, right? Especially during the hot weather months because they wanted that person to die with dignity. They didn't want their body to get all swollen and bloated like a body will after it dies and it's not refrigerated. And it's like Jesus is waiting, I think, so that no one can say when he does what he's going to do, ah, he was just asleep, right? Ah, he was just sick. Oh, no, baby. He was in a tomb four days. He was dead as dead as can be. So Martha rushes out in verses 21 and 22, and she says, Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God God will give you. I would say this young lady has a measure of faith, don't you? She believes if she had, he had been there, brother wouldn't have died. Even now, she says, God will give you whatever you want. But Jesus is going to take her little seed of faith and grow it into something much bigger. Do you have a seed of faith that God can grow? That's what's going to happen for her. Verse 23, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she answers the way any first century Jewish believer would have, minus the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. But the rest of the Jewish people did. So she basically affirms, oh yeah, at the end of the age, for sure, God will raise them. And by the way, at the end of the age, Jesus is going to raise everybody from the dust. Crazy passage, John chapter 5. He says, the hour is coming in which all those are in the grave shall hear my voice. But he's not talking about the general resurrection at the end of the age. So in verses 25 and 26, he drops the I am bomb. Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever, by the way, he doesn't say, I know about the resurrection. He doesn't even say, I caused the resurrection, which he does. What does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. And then he puts it this way. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, like physically die, yet shall he live. Because if you have trusted Christ, you have eternal life. You don't have life in the future, baby. You got life right now. And that means when your body physically gives up the spirit, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Then he puts it a little bit differently. He says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, yes, you're going to physically die, but you won't spiritually die. And I love what the King James puts it. He says, you won't even taste death. So in that moment of death, which we fear, God is just going to escort you into his presence. And he wants to make sure she embraces this. Because he says in verse 26, do you believe this? See, Jesus is passionate about his mission to glorify God by saving sinners. It won't do you any good to say, yes, I think Christianity is true, but never having actually turned to Jesus yourself. You're not saved by your theology. You're saved by your repentance and your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And she says these great words, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I wish I could camp on that, but I don't have time. Why does he drill in on that? Because Jesus just doesn't want to give short-term relief at a gravesite. Everyone's going to die. He wants her to experience grace forever. And that's what he wants for all of us here. So number one, Jesus' mission to glorify God by doing what? Saving sinners. Number two, I want us to see Jesus' compassion for hurting people. Jesus' compassion for hurting people. Christianity does not give you an exemption from sorrow. Anybody know that? Another pe- might be people on TV who will tell you if you come to Jesus and nothing bad will ever happen yet, they all die, right? Which makes them bold-faced liars. And I would actually say that coming to Jesus may kind of put the pedal to the metal on the suffering you will experience. Now listen to this. And I just want to bring something out that Boyce said in one of his 17 sermons on this text. Listen to me. If you interpret the love of God by circumstances in your life, you're not going to think God loves you. Lord, why did you let this happen to me if you love me? Right? If you interpret the love of God by circumstances, if good is happening, God loves me. If bad is happening, he doesn't love me. You are going to flounder in your faith. I'm not going to say, it's not that you're not a believer, you're just going to flounder. But if you flip that, if you Don't interpret the love of God by circumstances, but you interpret interpret circumstances by the love of God. You might say, this is really, this is hard, this is terrible, I don't understand it, I don't like it, etc., etc., etc. But I take by faith the fact that God is doing something bigger than I can see. And I'm just going to choose, despite my feelings, to walk by faith in the God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not that you're going to be immune from sorrow in that suffering. It is that you will have stability and you will be able to continue to walk in victory with Jesus. So here's what I want to say. 
instead of putting God on trial, we just need to trust him. Spurgeon put it this way, the love of Jesus for us does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. People are still people. The fall still happened. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from consumption or rheumatism rheumatism or asthma or can I add COVID-19. Now, having established that, again, this point is Jesus' compassion for hurting people, we have this very sweet window into an aspect of the life of Jesus that we often overlooked as we emphasize his deity and his humanity. A window into the emotional life of Jesus. Because what happens is Martha goes and tells Mary. Mary then goes to Jesus and says the same thing. And he's like, okay, your sister already said that. All right, I get it. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. But let's pick up, say, in verse, jumping ahead. Let's just jump ahead to here. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was what? Say it out loud if you have it in front of you. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved is one expression in the Greek. And frankly, people are perplexed on how to translate this because it only occurs three other times in the New Testament, and every time it communicates anger. There's a usage they have found of ex- outside of uh, ancient biblical literature, outside the Bible, and sometimes it was, refu- it was used to describe a horse that was snorting and angry. It is communicating Jesus is angry. What was he angry about? Some commentators say he was angry over their own belief. I don't think that is because he, he's recognizing belief that he's growing in them. Jesus is angry over sin. And the penalty it brings upon people, death. Jesus has compassion Sometimes compassion includes a component of anger against what hurts people, right? Then you have the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Spurgeon actually preached two whole sermons on those two single words, the shortest verse. Not only is Jesus angry over the effects of sin, he's sorrowful over what it does to people. He is, in the words of Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, this is what Jesus does not do in this moment. He doesn't say, you know, get over yourself. Get over your feelings. Get over your pain. I'm going to raise him from the dead. Haven't I been saying that all along? He doesn't say, listen, y'all. Man, you're sickening me. I'm going to save a guy named Paul, and he's going to write this verse, and God makes all things work together for good those who love him. So just chill out. He doesn't give them a theological answer. He will, right? But he simply enters into their pain. You see that? He just weeps. He doesn't say a word. He just weeps with them. And if you'll notice, so the Jews said, see how he loved him? Why are the Jews saying, see how he loved Lazarus? What are they seeing in Jesus that caused them to say that? The fact that he's weeping, right? And it just made me ask a question about myself, and maybe you could ask this about yourself. And guys, we probably really need to receive this because we don't tend to show our emotions too much. Do people look at my emotions over hurting people and say, wow, he really loves that hurting person? 
It's not that Jesus isn't going to get the truth, right? I mean, he already has spoken truth, and he's going to speak truth, and he is the truth. But in that moment, the one who has all the answers simply wept. Do you not see Jesus' compassion for hurting people? And if you're hurting right now, Jesus, I believe, has the same compassion for you that he did for them back at that grave site years ago. Now, it's not that his compassion doesn't lead us to action, him to action. This goes to our third and final point. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came where? To the tomb. Because if your compassion doesn't ultimately lead you to action, it ain't really compassion, right? Compassion does weep, but then it has feet, and he does something. Third and final point, Jesus' power to raise the dead. He tells them to take away the stone, to which they respond how? Woo! No, baby. He's going to stink. There's a reason coroners put Vicks underneath their nose before they do an autopsy. Flesh decaying doesn't smell good. But let's read on. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now note here, he has gone from empathy to exhorting. And there is a time for that. He's basically said, now listen, I felt your pain. Now I want you to believe my promise. Did I not tell you? Then he prays in verses 40 through 42, and just for the sake of time, he makes the point that he's praying out loud. He says, Father, I know you hear me. And basically said, I'm going to pray out loud so that other people know that you hear me. Which gives us precedent. Sometimes it's healthy to pray out loud for somebody as you're praying to God for them. They derive encouragement from that. But now look at verse 43. When he had said these things. Man, I, I wish I had a a voice like James Earl Jones to say this. It's such a powerful verse. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. It's just two words in the Greek. It's a command. Lazarus, come out! What happens? Maybe it happens. The man who had died had come out. It doesn't even say Lazarus. Why doesn't it say Lazarus? Because it's Lazarus. I think he's trying to say, keep your eyes on the big picture. What I'm doing with him is bigger. He's representing people that I will raise from the dead through the ages. The man who died had come out. Can you imagine the shock on people's faces? When's the last time you were at a gravesite and somebody came back from the dead? I mean, you can watch shows about it with zombies and stuff like that. But really, when's the last time that happened? It ain't happened. But it did happen. When the Creator speaks, even the dead listen. And it's been said through the centuries, 20 centuries of preaching this text, it is a good thing that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Otherwise, the whole graveyard would have exploded. And the day's coming when graveyards will explode. And I just want to say, this is a picture of what happens not just when somebody is saved, but how they're saved. Do you know the Scripture teaches that we're all born, still born spiritually? We're born physically alive, but dead in trespasses and sins. 
Notice, we're not born sleepy spiritually. We're not born sick spiritually. Man, we're born, yes, physically alive, flesh and blood, but we're born spiritually six feet under. Dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. But Ephesians goes on to say, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made alive. It's the word resurrection. He raised you up. He made you alive. And here's how it happens. Somebody is sharing the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in his or her voice, the voice of the Son of God comes forth and then mentions that person's name and says, fill in the blank, rise from the dead, come forth. And that's what happens. Now listen, we use natural means to share the gospel. We have to. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We share Bible scriptures. We ask people to listen to sermons. We do Bible studies with them. All of that. But our hope is not in our skill. Our hope is in the God who raises from the dead. Raises the dead. That in the midst of the natural means of proclaiming the gospel, the supernatural power of God will go forth. So their eyes are open. And that's how we describe it, right? You have a friend and they have no interest in spiritual things. And all of a sudden, boom, the eyes open up. They're concerned about their sin. They're standing with God and they're interested in Jesus. This is what God does. And I want to tell you this. Because God is in the business of raising the spiritually dead, and because all of us are born spiritually dead, there's nobody that's not savable. So we need to share the gospel like that. But it's not only a picture of what happens when God raises a sinner from the dead. It's a preview. I guess I don't have my notes, but that's fine. We're wrapping up. It is a preview of what will happen to Jesus. Because the Pharisees will put him in the grave, right? I don't have time to go through the last chapter, the last paragraph. That's fine. Caiaphas is a very wicked man. He doesn't like the fact that people are believing in Jesus, right? And he basically says, we got to take him out. It's, it, it's beneficial that one man should die instead of the whole nation. In other words, we get crushed because the Romans don't like us following this new Messiah. And, and John says he was speaking a lot better than he knew. He was actually speaking prophetically. Because Jesus died for all who would trust in him. A new people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. A new Israel. A new people. And he was buried in the grave. He was buried. And like Lazarus, he came forth. Only he came forth out of his own accord. Because as we saw in John 10 last week, he said, I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it back up again. Only God can raise himself from the dead, and yet he's a man too. Now I want to know, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus Christ? i got three quick applications, and we're going to sing. Number one, number one, if, if you know Jesus, praise God. You made your decision, but behind the scenes, God was raising you from the dead. So you ought to praise Him like never before when we sing in just a second. If you are saved, it wasn't just that you made a natural decision. You were a recipient of a supernatural action from above. You were born from above. And if you have not been saved, but you find your heart going in that direction, it might just be Jesus is calling you alive from the dead. So lean into that and trust in Him. Second of all, do you need to get out of your grave clothes? 
Do you need to get out of your grave clothes? You know in this story, we don't have time to go back, but he comes out, he staggers out, he's still got grave clothes on him, right? And Jesus says, hey, get those rags off him, and they do. And a lot of commentators know that's a picture of we come to Christ, but sometimes we don't let go of our old ways so easily. And we need a community around us. Do you have any old way thinking and living going on right now? Bring it to the light of community. Let us help each other take the grave clothes off and replace them with Isaiah 61, verse 3, the garment of praise, as one who's been made alive in God. And then finally, and this is full loop where we started, do you fear death? Because sometimes I don't fear death. I've trusted Jesus. Listen, everybody fears death at some level. You're supposed to fear death. It's not natural. People say, died of natural causes. Nobody dies of natural causes. There was no death until the fall. So, of course, there is a certain trepidation we have over death. Death jokes can be funny, but death ain't no joke. But Jesus fully tasted death for all who trust in Him. So that when you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And by the way, that body which may turn into dust at the end of the age, Jesus will summon that body from the dead and it will join your spirit again and you'll be alive evermore physically in His presence. Jesus is King over our last enemy, death. death. Because death could not hold Him down, death can't hold us down. Because He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. This is the Word of God. At the music team behind me, if you have never trusted Jesus, I want you to think about the songs we're singing, okay? And if you have trusted Jesus, I know I went a little long. This is the first time I had us all together, so I got a little fired up, okay? I'll try and shrink it down next week, all right? I would ask you as a believer, would you do this? Would you do this? I'm your friend. I'm your pastor. Would you think about God's goodness in your life? What He did to open your eyes that just like He said years ago, Lazarus, come forth. Whatever your name is, He said, come forth. That was the goodness of God pursuing you when you were in the grave. Right? So Isaiah 61 verse 3 says, let's put on the garment of praise. Let's stand to our feet and worship our God. This is the Word of God.